It's Friday the 13th of December and in the UK general election Boris Johnson's Conservatives have just won a landslide victory. Everybody involved in securing the biggest Conservative majority since the 1980s. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. I'm here at College Green outside the Houses of Parliament after a long night at the vote counts and the aftermath this morning to ask how did Boris turn Britain blue? Yesterday, voters trudged through the cold and dark to vote in the third general election in five years, the first December election in nearly a century. They faced a stark choice for who'd lead the new government between the Conservatives under Mr Johnson promising to deliver Brexit and a Labour Party that had swung hard to the left under Jeremy Corbyn. Well, the answer was clear. Boris Johnson has redrawn the political map of Britain, winning 365 seats to Labour's 203. Many people had never voted Conservative before and did so this time. Your hand may have quivered over the ballot paper as before you put your cross in the Conservative box. And you may intend to return to Labour next time round. And if that is the case, I am humbled. For Labour, it was the worst performance since 1935. Mr Corbyn has said he won't lead the party's next electoral campaign. There was also a Scottish Nationalist Party swing across Scotland. The Liberal Democrats, who'd most strongly opposed Brexit, made no gains and they've lost their leader, Joe Swinson. For the first time, it's clear that Britain will be leaving the European Union. And uh, with this mandate and this majority, we will at last be able to do what? We'll be paying attention. This well-trodden green is a bit like the village green of British politics. It's where politicians and political journalists gather on key days here at Westminster. You can tell a lot about the mood by the feeling on the green. And we've seen a lot of Conservatives coming and going, obviously pretty upbeat and happy with their victory. We've seen very few Liberal Democrats. They're mainly huddled away, I think, figuring out what to do after that poor showing by Joe Swinson. But for Labour, this has really been a particularly solemn and sombre occasion. I'm joined by Richard Bergen, the Labour MP for Leeds East. He's been Shadow Lord Chancellor and Shadow Secretary of State for Justice under Jeremy Corbyn. And he's often seen as one of the major foot soldiers of the Corbyn project. Hello, Richard. Hi, Anne. How are you? When did you get first inkling that this wasn't going the way for Labour that you'd hoped? Well, when I was uh, door-knocking in my constituency and elsewhere, I did come across problems in some of the towns uh, that voted leave. My seat itself voted leave, and I was uh, delighted to be uh, returned as the uh, Member of Parliament there. But I think... And you'll remain. Yes, and uh, you know we uh, wanted to bring the country uh, together, uh, and we had our Brexit uh, policy in order to try and do that. In relation to when we realised it was going so wrong. I think it was in the exit poll came out. But just after 10 o'clock uh, on election night, it was worse than anybody had feared. Uh, and it 
became clear to us that some seats had been laid for a very long time, particularly in small towns that had voted leave, uh, were at risk of going to the Conservatives. And what was your personal response? Obviously, disappointment. But did did you feel, oh, you know, something has gone wrong in the way that we've managed this campaign? Or it was very quick the message to come out. Oh, it's all about Brexit. But what was your first emotional response to it? Uh, my first emotional response was uh, sorrow for all those people I met on the campaign trail in my own constituency and elsewhere who were so desperate for a Labour government, so desperate for things to get better for them and their families and their community. And what really uh, was heartbreaking for me when that exit poll came through uh, was the realisation that they wouldn't be getting that and they may have to wait five years for an opportunity even uh, to get that again. WhatsApp text from Shadow Cabinet colleagues, tone, memorable phrases... I think people were just uh, taking in uh, the ramifications uh, of the exit poll. As the night wore on, obviously I was heartbroken to see uh, people like uh, Dennis Skinner and Laura Pidcock and other fantastic colleagues uh, lose their uh, seats. And I do think this was an unusual election. That's the reason that there's such a big difference between 2017 and 2019. And as it stands, I think the main reason for that was it became a Brexit election where um, the issue of Brexit really did overshadow traditional party loyalties, which is why I think we saw in seats that people would never have thought would have gone Conservative and were going Conservative. But also, I think we need to analyse the way that the Brexit party's uh, involvement operated because you had a kind of pincer movement between what I see as two parts of a kind of right-wing establishment, the Thatcherites in the Brexit Party, the Thatcherites in the Conservative Party. There's many people still in the North who, even if they don't like Labour, wouldn't dream of voting Conservative. So they had another option and that peeled away thousands of votes in certain constituencies which allowed the Conservatives to sneak through in some areas. And you've kept your seat, albeit reduced majority, but that uh, is still a bit of an achievement at the moment. There's a lot of Labour MPs who are not here uh, on the Green today who would maybe have expected to still be there. Now, what went wrong for the party in this campaign? Was it Brexit or was it Jeremy Corbyn? I think we've got to compare this with the 2017 general election. In the 2017 and 2019 uh, general election, we had very similar manifestos, the same leader, the same shadow chancellor, the same shadow home secretary. So it seems to me the big difference between 2017, when we gained 3 million votes and made an advance, and 2019, where we did badly and have been really knocked back, the main difference is the fact that this became a Brexit election, and Brexit overshadowed traditional party loyalties. So this election was a Brexit election, the next election won't be. Well, hang on a minute, you also lost, you lost in Remain seats as well as in Leave seats. Now, if it had been a Brexit election and Boris Johnson was clearly promising Leave and uh, your leader Jeremy Corbyn was kind of a little bit hedged, let's be honest, didn't quite be, be clear what he was offering, but you were also losing in Remain seats. So really, maybe it wasn't just Brexit, maybe it was Jeremy Corbyn. Well, I think that uh, it being a Brexit election made us lose on all sorts of fronts because, uh, as you uh, say, we lost votes to the Lib Dems in some seats, uh, London for example. We lost uh, votes to the SNP uh, in Scotland. So what we need is an objective and thorough analysis because the picture across the country isn't uniform. We need to see where geographically uh, we lost votes and who too because I think across the country it's not a uniform picture. So we need to have a real sober analysis. Just as we had to have a sober analysis when we lost 5 million votes between 1997 and 2010 as well. If you look back to 1983, the great Michael Foot defeat from the, the left, Labour did move to the centre and a Eventually, it was a haul, but it got back to power from the centre ground. 
at the centre, the definition may have changed. But doesn't something have to change about the offer that you've made to the voters? I actually think that the policies we're offering uh, weren't uh, unpopular on the doorstep. In relation to Brexit, it became problematic. But in relation to our policies on the minimum wage, free childcare, the NHS, public ownership of rail, mail and water, these things weren't being raised with me in a negative way on the doorstep, either in my own constituency or elsewhere. And they were very similar actually to the policies in the manifesto two years ago. So I do think, although we need to analyse it further, my initial instinct is that the main cause of this defeat, of this bad defeat, was the fact this became a Brexit election where the issue of Brexit overshadowed traditional party loyalties. And are you spotting anyone among your colleagues you'd particularly like to think of serving under as a successor to Jeremy Corbyn? Uh, well, let's see when it comes to the positions of leader and deputy leader. I don't want to speculate uh, at this uh, point, but whoever takes those positions, I don't believe we can go back to the position we had when we lost 5 million votes after the 1997-2010 government and we can't go back to supporting policies of war and uh, having a kind of austerity light approach not only is it the wrong position morally uh, as far as I'm concerned I also think it's uh, not a policy which will gain back those votes that we need to gain back after last night's results Not thinking of a run at leadership yourself? I'm not ruling anything out in relation to either leader or deputy leader I think it's too early to uh, consider or make statements on those things. Um, statements will be made by myself and other colleagues in due course. Statements will be made. Thank you, Richard Burke. Thank you very much. A tantalising hint from someone who might well be part of the senior power struggle in the wake of Labour's defeat. Even the Tories seemed surprised by the margin of their grand victory. But what of the polling companies who are handsomely paid to get this more right than wrong? How did they fare? After most polls in the run-up to Brexit failed to predict the Leave result, pollsters have been scrambling to overhaul their methods and win back public confidence. And this time around, some of their predictions have been remarkably accurate. Priya Minhas is a political researcher at Opinium, which managed to predict today's results almost exactly. Hello there, Priya. Hello, and thanks for having me on. There had been talk that the polls had had their day and no longer did their job properly. So to what extent has this election redeemed the profession? I think massively it has redeemed definitely the polling industry. A lot of different pollsters got this election right. Um, I mean, going back to the EU referendum, actually, while on the whole, the industry um, didn't always get it right. There were some companies, including our own, that did predict that um, Leave was going to win. But it is true that back in 2015 and back in 2017, there were issues at the time with um, how representative sampling was and rate sets um, and the models that were going on, which did mean that back in 2015, the um, Conservative share was underestimated while the Labour one was overestimated. And then in trying to correct that in 2017, the Conservative share was overestimated. So definitely in this election, pollsters have had to go back and re-examine how they're sampling and what they're putting into their weighting models. And that paid off really well in this election. Well, this result was at the furthest edge of most pollsters' margins of error. How did opinion manage to get it so spot on? And what did you do differently? So we actually made a number of changes this time round to make the sampling more representative and accurate. So um, firstly, we made an earnest attempt to account for what the electorate actually looks like rather than what the resident population looks like. So we only are people that are eligible to vote in national elections. Um, another thing we did was we actually asked people about their ethnicity and boosted ethnic minorities in our sampling to be more reflective of the population. And we've also tried to think outside the box with demographic 
factors that correlate strongly with how someone may vote. And from this, we were able to see that as a combination of gender, age, region, employment status, car ownership, occupation, and pass vote from 2015, 16, and 17. And those are all the things that we incorporated into our model. There were also a couple of other things that we took into account, which we think is what helped us get to the result that we did accurately. We accounted firstly for false recall in 2017 and 2015 pass votes. So roughly about one in 10 voters um, don't accurately remember who they voted for two years ago when we asked them now, and we compare it to what they told us back then. Um, And we also, in this election, have corrected for which constituencies the parties are standing in. So one thing that happened with us in 2017 is that we suffered from a larger vote share being given to the smaller parties. But that was because we did not correct for the fact that in hundreds of seats, those parties weren't standing. Any surprises last night? Uh, Not really for us. The surprise was that there was no surprise. This is a trend we were really seeing all throughout the campaign. We were a bit of an outlier. Um, We've been showing a strong Tory lead throughout. Um, So for us, there wasn't really a surprise there. That is what our data have been showing us. Priya Minhas, thanks very much. Thank you. Let's take a longer lens to what's happened in this seismic couple of days. As the helicopters circled overhead and Boris Johnson returned from his audience with the Queen, I spoke to two veteran figures from either side of the party divide. Sir Michael Fallon, who began his career as Conservative MP for the northern seat of Darlington back in 1983 under Margaret Thatcher, and he rose to be Defence Secretary, also a former chairman of the Conservative Party. With him was Lord Falconer, a prominent Blairite and former Justice Secretary for the Labour Party. I asked Michael Fallon, as someone who knows the North East well, how he accounted for the Conservatives' breaching of the so-called Labour Red Wall. Well, I think it was the Labour leadership, actually. The reports I had, particularly from Teesside, it wasn't just Brexit, it was Corbyn. It was a genuine fear about Corbyn and the risk he posed to security and to the economy. It was Corbyn's you know, inability to actually answer the European question, I think, that also cast doubt on his leadership generally. And so it wasn't the Tory party what won it? Well, I think in the end, you know, it, it was Corbyn that uh, certainly lost it. You had very traditional Labour voters saying publicly for the first time that they were going to go across and support Boris in getting Brexit done. These are constituencies that voted leave, most of them, and really have felt betrayed that their, their vote has not been uh, properly implemented in three and a half years since the referendum. And just draw us a bit of a picture of that blue wave of, of seats. You represented Darlington because you're Conservative. That was, I think, 83 about 92 yes but since then it's been uh, solidly Solid Labour, Labour a big Labour majority you were times. telling me that you th- you could basically you could follow almost a ribbon on the map well we certainly did better on Teesside than Tyneside and the River Tees is almost a blue river now from Redcar on the coast through Stockton South through Darlington through Sedgefield through Bishop Auckland up into the up into the Dales now that's an extraordinary transformation uh, Lord Falconer you're competing against the, the helicopters this is what happens the day we get a Prime Minister isn't it but uh, our audience will bear with us what do you make of that blue wave across the north of England well I agree with quite a lot of what Michael has said that place which is now a blue wave had got sufficiently disgruntled with Westminster and London government to vote for Brexit they weren't buying anymore what they thought central government whether it be Labour or Conservative was dishing out and they made that clear in voting for Brexit. They then saw the party to whom they had traditionally looked to bring prosperity as they would see it blocking Brexit and they saw 
the leadership of the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn and the Shadow Cabinet, as they saw it, with no particular position on Brexit, except that they were perpetually delaying it. So their faith, which had gone in relation to the Brexit issue, then translated into this election. And it's not come out of the blue, because, for example, Bishop Auckland, that has gone Tory for the first time since 1918, when Labour seriously stood in Bishop Auckland, had been down to a few hundred votes majority for Labour before then. So we failed to offer the things that the blue ribbon, as as they've now become, as Michael called them, had traditionally looked to Labour to deliver. So this is seen by both of you to an extent as a story of, of failure and voters feeling either left behind or cross that something wasn't delivered. How important, Michael Farm, is the figure of Boris Johnson here? Has he reached parts of the country that other Conservatives uh, couldn't reach? Still, growing up in the northeast of England, I know it to be a place where sort of Conservative was a bit of a swear word. Sorry to say that to you because you did represent one of the few little well, Sort of I, I Tory strongholds, but uh, even that was was always touch and go. It always was. I remember that, particularly when the miners' strike they hit the northeast, uh, you know, v- very hard, and the disruption from some of the communities. But when Boris was on Teesside, when he was in the northeast this time, all the reports were that he was fizzing with energy. He was optimistic about the future. You didn't really hear from Jeremy Corbyn much optimism about Britain. You know, it was all very negative and pessimistic and so on. Boris, I think, managed to put it, put over a view of Britain that we have a good future ahead of us and that that can be delivered and it can help regions like the North East. Is that for real, though, uh, Lord Falconer? Uh, Do you believe that Boris Johnson can deliver on this implicit promise to parts of the country who believe themselves to be suffering? I don't think that he can because I think it's very difficult to do and it requires somebody who understands what's going on and puts an effort in. But to go back to your question, the comparison that is quite valid is to make with Theresa May. At the very beginning of the 2017 election, there was a considerable anxiety amongst the Labour Party that she would do what Boris has done overnight last night. Take from Labour seats that have for generations been Labour. He has managed to persuade people who, in the North East, where Michael was once an MP, if you mentioned the word Margaret Thatcher, the room would go quiet as they remembered Mrs Thatcher taking away their jobs and destroying their livelihood. That's a Conservative Prime Minister in their eyes. Mrs May who was appealing to the Brexit voters in those places in 2017, at the beginning of the 2017 election, looked like she might be able to do what Boris has achieved now, take these seats off Labour. But she didn't because Theresa May ultimately was perceived by those seats to be another Tory leader. The power of Boris Johnson is that he does not appear to be a Tory. He doesn't appear to be anything that is easily pigeonholable as a politician, which made it easier for him to take these Labour heartland seats off Labour. But Michael Fallon, we know that magic can fade in in politics. Quite quickly sometimes. Turns out. And that is perhaps the risk for Boris Johnson, is it not? That that expectation that he can deliver something for various parts of the country, all of whom will feel that they have various claims on this huge majority, 
what would you be advising him if you were still sitting around that cabinet table just a few hundred yards away from where we're standing here at Westminster on how to handle that sense of huge you know, sort of delight but expectation and possible jeopardy? Well, certainly to listen to those new MPs. They're rather a new breed. A lot of them are very local, uh, inside the community, a new breed of Conservative candidate. And they will be there in Parliament, you know, sitting behind him. And they will, of course, be expecting, you know, the investment in infrastructure that he promised, the increase in public spending that he promised. They will be saying, where is the new hospital? When is the new railway opening? So the pressure will be on him to deliver from his own MPs. It'll be a much bigger parliamentary party and more national. I must ask you both before, I know you both have to leave us, everybody's dashing around here. It's nothing like the day after the election for keeping everyone busy. But closing thoughts from you both on where this leaves the Brexit process. Uh, Michael Fallon, you were around at the the heart of the action in the Conservative Party ministerial office when this all kicked off. Do you think Boris Johnson will, to use his phrase, get Brexit done? Yes, because I think he's spotted something that really, you know, eluded Theresa May, that actually the referendum is behind us. Labour and the Liberal Democrats, you know, still in this campaign are still almost arguing as if the referendum can be refought all over again. I think what Boris spotted is that apart from some of the more fanatical people on either side of the argument, most people accept that was the vote. It was three years ago and really now we've just got to get on with it. I think he will obviously get Brexit done in the sense that we will actually leave the European Union by the 31st of January. And what's more, because he's got a big majority, I think he will get a trade deal. And he'll probably get a trade deal sooner than people think. But it will not be a good trade deal. It will be a trade deal cooked up in Downing Street without real parliamentary scrutiny, where the driving force of this trade deal will be any deal and the, the the chance of no deal has gone down dramatically because the European Union will have spotted that there is now a Prime Minister who is able without any let or hindrance to deliver Parliament and we will, he will gallop towards a deal. The damage in inverted commas that it may do to the country would remain to be seen. Can't let you go uh, Charlie Faulkner without asking can you spot a new leader of the Labour Party? I think you've been active for oh as many decades as you'd like to admit to. I spot a lot of people who who, who could lead the Labour Party and would be formidable in their threat to the Conservative Party. So people like uh, Keir Starmer, Emily Thornberry, um, Yvette Cooper, Lisa Nandy, Angie Rayner, all of them would be serious contenders to lead the Labour Party. Thank you very much, Lord Faulkner, and Sir Michael Fallon. Thank you very much. And we'd love to know what you think. How can Labour and the centre-left get back to former glories? Can the new government in Britain get Brexit done and on what terms? And beyond Brexit, what will this new Blue Britain look like? For our full analysis of the results and for what happens next, subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer. I'm Anne McElvoy and from Westminster in London, this is The Economist. <laughs>